Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles to this morning's scripture, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. If you would like, you can follow along in a pew Bible, and the passage is on page 1001. And as you are able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word to behold the wondrous mystery of the gospel, would you come and open our eyes that we might see, unchain our hearts and our spirits that we might be free in Christ, we ask in his name, amen. For the last three weeks, we have been unpacking a beautiful portrait of Jesus that has been presented to us and painted for us by the author of Hebrews in chapter 1. Now in chapter 2, he takes that teaching about Christ and makes it very practical, like a good preacher. And this is a pattern of theology followed by application that he's going to use throughout the book, as we'll see in our study. For the author of Hebrews isn't merely interested in giving us intellectual information about who God is. Rather, as one who has a pastor's heart, he wants us to see the practical nature of our study of God. And so here at the outset of chapter 2, he steps out of expositional teaching mode and gives real-world practical application of chapter 1. Verses 1 through 4 um, that were just read in chapter 2 form the first of a series of warnings that he gives in his letter. And in this first one, he cautions us to pay attention. Well, that's about as practical as one can get, isn't it? It's a basic instruction for children, employees, students, all of us in different settings we find ourselves in in life. When we have some important information to share, to give someone, we start with, now listen, I really need you to pay attention to what I'm about to say. But the author of Hebrews isn't giving us academic information that we're going to be tested on later. He isn't instructing us in household chores that we need to perform in order to get our allowance. 
And he isn't warning us that we're in jeopardy of losing our job if we don't listen to the boss. No, he's giving us the weightiest warning that could ever be given to another human being. He is telling us to pay attention to the most important information that we will ever be confronted with. A matter of life and death eternally. He begins with the word, therefore, as a transition word. He's saying, because of what I have been telling you about Jesus up to this point and his message of salvation, I need you to pay very close attention to something. And this leads us to the first point in your outline, the danger of neglecting the gospel. Verse 1 says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. You notice here that there's both a, a passive, or rather a positive, and a negative admonition. Positively, we're to pay very close attention. And negatively, don't drift away. The idea of drifting away is not in the sense of an act of rebellion and outright defiance of God, but it's one of negligence, one of carelessness in our lives. It has the idea of almost a nautical term of being carried away with a current, like a piece of wood. It's floating. I remember an incident at the beach years ago, and honey, I'm sorry, I didn't get your permission to share this, <laughs> when one of our boys was just a toddler and couldn't swim yet. Sharon was holding him in her arms and standing in the surf as the waves were rolling in. I was taking a nap and wasn't really paying attention. <laughs> little by little, the undertow pulled them out until she could no longer touch bottom. When a situation like that, you can't let go of the child in order to swim, and so you just keep drifting away with the tide. Well, clearly things worked out, <laughs> but it was a scary moment, a very scary moment, just drifting away. Well, Hebrews, in Hebrews 6.19, the author says that we have this hope of the gospel in Christ as a sure and steady anchor of the soul. We're going to close the service today with our hymn of the month, one of, another one of Matt's songs, Christ the Sure and Steady Anchor, which is based on this scripture and this scriptural idea. We must pay attention and hold fast to the hope of the gospel, our anchor, lest we drift away and find ourselves in mortal danger. So as, as Presbyterians and as Reformed folks, do, do, does this mean that we can lose our salvation? No. Perseverance in faith and our security in Christ is not what the author is addressing here. A complete drifting away into apostasy would indicate never having been tethered to the anchor to begin with. But we must be on guard and we must not neglect the gospel in our lives. To do so would indicate our not 
being in Christ. We find this aspect of faith and this tension being addressed in the book of James. In chapter 1, verse 22, James says that we must be doers of the word, not hearers only. The recipients of the book of Hebrews had heard the gospel, but they were still in danger because they weren't paying attention to it. They were neglecting it. They were being careless. Hearing isn't any good unless there's action accompanying it. James continues in chapter 2, what good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith, can that kind of faith save him? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Well, we know physically, biologically, that once the spirit has left a body, it's no longer alive. It can do nothing. If good works do not accompany your faith, then your faith is dead, and it's really no faith at all. And this is why easy believism is so dangerous. Some folks are banking their salvation on a prayer or an experience that they had many, many years ago, but they had absolutely no fruit of salvation in their lives. There's no difference between them and an unbeliever. They've drifted away from the truth of the gospel, and it was never applied to their hearts by the Holy Spirit. Jesus' parable of the sower in Matthew 13 helps us to understand this and unpacks it a little bit for us. When he's explaining the parable to his disciples, Jesus says, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, he immediately falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But as for those who was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit. Like a boat that comes untethered from an anchor and is at risk of drifting over the waterfall, we neglect the gospel at our own peril. Additionally, this should motivate us to tell others not to neglect it. Do you know anyone who knows the gospel intellectually and maybe they even professed it at one point in their lives? But, but they have neglected it to the point of drifting away? Well, they need to hear this gracious warning from Hebrews. Perhaps some here need to hear this gracious warning today. Continuing in verse 2, we read, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The second point is the penalty of sin and, and the gospel. The message declared by 
or we could also use the preposition through, the message declared through the angels, is a reference to the law given to Moses at Mount Sinai after the Israelites were freed from slavery in Egypt. They met God there under Moses' leadership. While this story, as told in the book of Exodus, doesn't mention angels being with God on Sinai when it was delivered to Moses, there are a couple of allusions to it in the Old Testament, one in Deuteronomy 33 and one in Psalm 68. And the Apostle Paul reinforces this truth in Galatians 3, and we hear from Stephen, the martyr, in Acts 7 about these angels accompanying God, delivering the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. Well, the law was accompanied by judgment and penalties that were enforced when it was broken. We know the stories of the Old Testament and how that happened and came about. The writer tells us that if under the law each person receives their retribution for the sins they commit and the laws they disobey by neglecting to do them, why would we expect less judgment if we neglect the gospel? After all, it was declared not by angels, but by the Lord himself. It is of much greater consequence than the message delivered by the angels. Sometimes I think we make the mistake of thinking that the law and the gospel are at odds with each other. Well, the problem isn't with the law. The problem is with the lawbreakers. <clears throat> the law doesn't need to be replaced or fixed because it's deficient. However, it is true that it, it is insufficient for our salvation. But that's not because the law is flawed. It's perfect. It's because we're flawed. And we can't possibly keep it apart from the righteousness of Christ given to us. It was Christ's perfect keeping of the law that made him a worthy sacrifice for our sin. He was the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. And the penalty for your sin wasn't overlooked. It wasn't swept under the rug. All sin, whether under the old covenant or under the new, must be paid for. And Isaiah tells us that this is how the sin of God's people was paid for. He, Christ, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned, every one, to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, on Christ, the iniquity of us all. In addition, believers through the power of the Holy Spirit, have the law impressed upon our hearts. And as a result of the Holy Spirit's empowerment, we have the ability to keep the law now. Not perfectly, but progressively as we are made more and more holy and more and more like our Savior, like Jesus. After all, Jesus said in, in the Gospel of Matthew, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. And in Christ, as Philip Hughes says in his commentary, 
the glory of the law is completely surpassed by the glory of the gospel because the latter brings life where the former brought death. We must place great value on our salvation. It is the greatest gift that we possess. Imagine getting a prized and costly gift from somebody who loves you deeply. Maybe a piece of fine jewelry or a new car. And then you put the gift away. You never wear it. You never drive it. You never talk about it or acknowledge it. What an affront that would be to the gift giver. Are we ever like that with the gospel? Is it something we hide away or neglect? Or is it something we live into every moment of every day? John Calvin says, God wishes his gifts to be valued by us at their proper worth. The more precious they are, the baser or worse is our ingratitude. In accordance with the greatness of Christ, so will be the severity of God's vengeance on all despisers of the gospel. That's a hard word. It's a difficult thing to hear, and it's a warning for us today from the Scripture. But, beloved, if we ignore this because it makes us uncomfortable, then we do so at our own peril. And not only that, but any pastor, any church, any denomination that neglects the supremacy of Christ and his gospel will find themselves in a very tenuous and dangerous place. We must not do that. The rhetorical question put to us here, a device that the author is going to use frequently throughout the book, is how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Well, of course, the assumed and obvious answer is can't. Thirdly is the reliability of the gospel. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. It seems that for these receivers of this book of the Hebrews that the reliability of this new message, the gospel, was being challenged by some of them. After all, they had the law which was delivered to Moses by God's divine messengers, the angels. But the gospel was delivered to, to them from Jesus' disciples, just men. How could this message be better than the message delivered by the angels? So the writer emphasizes that the gospel was spoken first directly by Jesus And he's already established that Jesus is the divine son of God. He's superior to angels, as he tells us in chapter 1. And the message that Jesus taught and subsequently expressed in his obedience to the law, his death on the cross, his resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of the Father, that was attested to by firsthand witnesses, people who saw it, people that experienced it, people that heard it from the mouth 
of Jesus himself. And not only that, but God confirmed this message and his son through signs and wonders and all kinds of miracles that many witnessed. And even further than that, through the distributing of gifts of the Holy Spirit to the church to aid in the spread and in the authority of this gospel message. This challenging of the gospel goes on today, doesn't it? Secularists and atheists and even liberal biblical scholars and theologians question the authority of God's word by looking to the humanity of the writers of the New Testament. They say that the apostles were all just fallible men who were trying to keep the dream alive after Jesus left the scene, making up these stories. But in doing that, they discount what the author of Hebrews is saying here. The message didn't originate with men. It didn't even come through angels. It came through the living word of God, Jesus himself. It was delivered directly by God to humanity through God who took on flesh. Very God of very God. Here again, as we've already seen, we see the supremacy of the Son and his message over everything else in all of creation. And if God has spoken in these days through his Son, we must not neglect his message to us. The final point of the outline is the, the end goal of the gospel. Conclude with verse 5, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Again, the author is reminding us of what he's already taught us in chapter 1. That while the angels, the messengers who serve at the throne of God, are above fallen humanity for now, it's not to them that all things will be subjected. It is to a man that all things will be subjected. The perfect God-man. The incarnate Son of God. The Lord Jesus Christ. And this world to come that he speaks of is not out there in the distance. It's upon us now. It's true that we still await the fullness of the kingdom in its perfection, but later, just a, a few short chapters later in the letter, the writer tells us this, that those who have been enlightened have tasted the heavenly gift. We've shared in the Holy Spirit, we've tasted the goodness of God and the powers of the age to come. Christ's second coming doesn't mark the start of his glorious kingdom to come. It completes the coming of his kingdom. This is what the celebration of Advent is all about that we've just come through. Jesus came to save us through his humiliation on the cross, but he also came and was exalted to the throne of heaven at his ascension and reigns from there today. His coming will be completed when he returns in great power and glory. So when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're not only praying for a future kingdom, we're praying for the here and now as well. 
To neglect the gospel is to ignore the kingdom that is all around us. As we've said in previous weeks, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over his creation. So how do we mesh that with what we see going on around us? How do we fit those two things together? Well, we're in a spiritual battle. There's no question about that. And while the sure hope of victory is ours in Christ, we are not there completely yet. Christ's kingdom is growing and God is subjecting more and more of it every day to the Son's eternal reign. And the church is the means by which God is working this out. We've been called not to neglect and drift away from the gospel, but to advance it into enemy territory. If you want to make a difference in this broken and suffering and fallen world, don't spend your time consumed with the news channels. Don't spend your time as a chicken little who declares that we're defeated. Spend your energy advancing the gospel in your own life and in the lives of others. We can't neglect it personally, and we can't neglect telling others. It's all we've got, folks. It's the only message we have. It doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't apply to and address every area of our lives. It does. It speaks to our relationships. It speaks to how we are to interact with politics and government. It speaks to how we live morally. It speaks to caring for the poor. It speaks to justice. But these things aren't in addition to the gospel message. The way we carry out our lives and everything is wrapped up entirely in this great salvation that we have in Christ. It isn't one aspect of our Christian lives. Okay, well, I've taken care of that. Now I can begin to live a good life and do these other things that are important. No, it's the center of everything. It's the foundation upon which our lives are built. Everything else is addressed from that foundation. And if we neglect or detach the gospel in any aspect of the Christian life, we're going to be in danger of drifting away. Drifting away and becoming a self-help club or a social justice organization or a theology interest group. The Bible isn't a self-help book to enable you to have your best life now. The Bible, from cover to cover, is the message of hope for a lost and dying world found in the salvation offered in Jesus Christ alone. Everything else is secondary and only important as it relates to that foundational message. The message of the gospel is all-consuming. There is not a portion of your life that it is not over and that Jesus is not interested in bringing into subjection to himself. Most of you know that we have, 
We've set some lofty goals here at the first of the year for our church. And one of those is to mobilize our congregation with a message of hope for the world. Well, as we seek to mobilize this body with the good news that our world so desperately needs, we've got to keep the main thing the main thing. We must pay very close attention to what we've heard so that we don't drift away from our mission, our high and holy calling. As I started out today in the worship service, it's been a hard few weeks for our world. It's depressing. Every day seems to greet us with something else, highlighting the sin and brokenness all around us. So when the world wakes up in the morning to the next tragedy, the next mass shooting, the next natural disaster, the next display of brutality, the next declaration of war, the next public scandal, And when you wake up to the news from a family member or friend about a dreaded diagnosis or the announcement of a broken relationship or the sudden death of a loved one, what do you have for them? What do we as a church have for the world? And not just them, what do you have for you? What do you have for your own soul, your own heart, your own life? What enables you to get out of bed in the morning? If you belong to Jesus, you have him. You have the good news of Jesus Christ. You are one of his children, and that is all you need. You possess life in Christ. The good news that was spoken first by the Lord himself. It was attested to by others and by the miracles and signs and wonders and the Holy Spirit. You have Christ, the sure and steady anchor of your soul. Hold fast to him, for his promise to you is that he will never let you go. Let's pray. Oh God, what a glorious gift is ours in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you that you are in the business of saving sinners and of building your kingdom on earth. And so Father, as we hold fast to the anchor of our souls, would you enable us to be light in the darkness, to be salt staving off the corruption around us, to be those who are advancing your kingdom with the good news of Jesus Christ by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, use us to this end, we ask in Christ's name.